Amen. And you do have a handout, as I said, that I didn't give it to you so that we could go over it. That would actually take the whole session, and I don't want to do that. But you notice on, the, on one side it says seven cycles in the book of Revelation. This was taken from Sermon 2 and taken from William Hendrickson's book, More Than Conquerors. Uh, you can take a look at that later, and it gives you an idea of how the chapters break down. And you can see them there. And, of course, um, we see the second coming of Christ, the end of the world, throughout the book. And that's what this is based on, is the second coming of Christ and the end of the world. It's recapitulation. It's the fact that we're seeing the same thing over and over and over again with different eyes. I will just mention the major themes in Revelation, because these are the things that we should be seeing and should understand as we go through this book. The majesty of God shines through. You can see God's scripture there. It declares God's sovereignty. That's throughout the entire book. It defines clearly the suffering of believers in this present world. And it's a book of encouragement and fear. Over and over, believers are told to take heart. Over and over, the lost are warned. It really isn't primarily an evangelistic book. Now, the Lord can use it for evangelistic purposes. But it's actually the, the Lord is telling us what's going to happen to the impenitent that never turn. Okay, so we don't see a lot of evangelistic appeals, so a few. Fifth of all, it declares the certain and final victory of Christ and all of his people. And again, another sample scripture is given for you there. It clearly defines the eternal bliss of the saints and the eternal punishment of the lost. And then those chapters are highlighted there, chapter 4 and 5, and again 21 and 22 for the bliss of the saints and what's happening there. And, of course, the eternal punishment of the lost, representative scripture, that's in, in Revelation 21. And then, I, and I think this is vital here, and this is what is forgotten. It's a book of relevance to the first century church and to all Christians ever after or ever since then. And you find that mistake on two different levels. Some put it entirely into the future, almost entirely, except for maybe the first three chapters. And so it really has no relevance. I know it was a problem for me uh, growing up in, in those kind of uh, dispensational circles. Uh, we were always in the book of Revelation and uh, speculating on what, uh, you know, what these winged creatures happened to be and what they were doing, and uh, maybe they were helicopters. And you know, all, you get all this kind of thing going on all the time. And I don't mean to mock, but, you know, and I would sit there after a while and say, why, why do I even care? It has nothing to do with me. I've, I got raptured in, in chapter 4, verse 1. You know, so all the rest of this is irrelevant. It's going to happen someday. Um, anyway, maybe that's just me that thinks like that, but that's what I used to think. And so it became a problem to me, but um, it, I was ripe for an all-millennial view, I think, probably because of that. And so there's relevance there's relevance to the first century church. There's relevance to the church through all ages. There's relevance to our church. And there is an end. It will come to an end. But the end hasn't happened yet. We're still going. We're still going. Okay. So that gets us started there. Now, Revelation 17, go ahead and turn there. We just aren't going to really do much more than introduce Revelation 17. Because I want to go back over some of the things that we've looked at, especially some of the symbolism. Uh, the sermon's entitled, Satan and What His Agents Symbolize. I want to go over some of the, the symbolism, because if we understand that, we'll understand the book so much more. If we don't understand the symbolism, well, like in chapter 13 this morning, no doubt there were some that uh, were talking about a first beast, talking about a second beast. I go, what in the world is that all about, you know? Well, that would be a natural thing. We need to understand what these things happen to be. And so we've already shown that Revelation is a book of cycles. Understanding that's a key. If you don't understand that, you've got a handout that can help you understand that. And um, I'm not going to go over that, like I said. But 17 starts a new section of the book of Revelation. And it really has so much to do with chapter 13 that was read for us this morning. You know, So... What we have is the beginning of the fall of Babylon and the two beasts, which is the final judgment on the devil's helpers. 
And then in chapter 20, we see the judgment of Satan himself. And now, um, and that goes us from chapter 20 to chapter 22, the fall of Satan, Christ's victory, and eternal glory and punishment. Now look at chapter 16, verse 16, if you would. Okay. So this shows how the last section ended with the coming of Christ, emphasizing the judgment of the lost. 16, 16. I'll go back to 15. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Where did, what, where's the rest of Armageddon? Armageddon is really famous. That's all it says there. Well, we will see Armageddon again. Okay, it's not there in 16. It just tells us that we've assembled them to, that God has assembled them together. And the place in the Hebrew is called Armageddon. So then we go to verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, a great earthquake. All these, of course, symbolic of the mighty power of God. These are just some earthly examples of God's mighty power. It doesn't even really scratch the surface, but it gets our attention and we understand Okay, so the great earthquake and all of that, that like has never been since man was on the earth, so great an earthquake. The city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. Okay, so there's the, our end times language once again. Uh, with, with the judgment of God on the lost. But then look at verse 21. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds, each fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of hail, because the plague was great. And so we need to remember this is Jewish apocalyptic literature, and uh, we could actually say the cycle ended in verse number 20. Verse 21 might confuse us because it looks like, well, after all that happened, you know, now we're talking about hailstones and everything like that. I thought the world just ended. And uh, look at 17.1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I'll show you the judgment of the great prostitute who's seated on many waters. So we're talking about recapitulation here. This sixth cycle is still part of the seven bowls. If you looked on the back of your paper, you'd see it's sixth cycle. It's part of the seven bulls. The seven seals led to seven trumpets. The seven trumpets gave way to the seven bulls, but not really. I have a quote here that I suspect I probably took it from someone, but uh, I didn't uh, attribute it to him. So let me just read it to you. The wrath of God upon the impenitent men is encapsulated in the seals, the bulls, and the trumpets. They do not necessarily come one after the other, but they show forth the entirety of the wrath of God on the lost during this present age, culminating in the final judgment and the final vindication of the saints. So we know, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. But uh, we can think of them going on simultaneously, really, instead of saying, okay, well, you know, now the, the, bowl, the seals are over, so the trumpets have to start. Now the trumpets are over. Now the bowls have to start. Okay. What we do see is uh, really uh, it gets worse. You know, uh, the trumpets are worse than the than the seals, and the bowls are the worst of all. And uh, that's why it's intensifying as we go. And Revelation is a book of spiritual warfare. But the overriding theme of it is that we're guaranteed victory. The lamb is going to win. And because the lamb wins, we win too. However, we do have to understand that we're not guaranteed victory in this life. If we were guaranteed victory in this life, like some would like to claim, then the martyrs that have stood for Christ have to be the weakest and most pitiable of all Christians. They failed miserably because they didn't gain the victory. They were killed. They were slaughtered because of their bravery and their stance for Christ. But uh, they didn't get the victory. If the victory is promised for this present world, 
the martyrs are a failure. But we know they're not a failure. We know that they're honored, honored by God and honored by us too. So we cling unto the promises of God. We're promised the church will continue until the coming of Christ. We can even expect times of triumph for the church. We might even see times of great victory for the church and, and great revival. You know, because over and over in the book of Revelation, we see the full number of the elect being given. And uh, when they're seen in their entirety, uh, they're more than can be counted. Uh, that's like it's promised to Abraham, uh, and like the sand of the sea or the stars of heaven. You know, those are metaphors, true, but it means an innumerable company, one that you can't really just count. And so uh, there are analogies, but convey the ideal idea of immenseness. Now let's take a break for a moment here and talk about numbers in the book of Revelation because I think that'll be helpful for us to, to pick up some key numbers that we need to remember. It's a book of imagery and it's a book of numbers. And Vodibasham, who really did a really fine job working his way through Revelation, I haven't used him as a source like I probably could have. I've got so many sources if you look at my Revelation commentary series, it takes up an entire bookshelf on the bottom of the whole thing. It's a lot of books. Don't even have time to read them all on any given chapter. But um, Vadi Basham said this, We must assume the signs, symbols, and visions that we read are symbolic unless we're clearly shown that they're literal. Uh, that's an interesting statement if you really think about it, because it goes against the grain of, of much of modern hermeneutic. You know, uh, most preachers will tell you, you know, you've got to take the Bible literally unless it plainly shows that it's symbolic. What Ibasham says in the book of Revelation, it's plainly going to be symbolic unless it's told that it's literal. Take it just the opposite view, and I think that he's correct in saying that. And uh, if you do take Jewish apocalyptic literature literally, it will lead to some very bizarre and wrong-headed conclusions. You'll have a beast with ten heads, a very grotesque thing. But very few translate it or think of it that way. They usually have it symbolize a man. Okay. And so, you know, we, we can't pick and choose. We have to realize that numbers have significance and uh, we should have the idea of symbols unless we're told it's literal. So let's recap some numbers. Seven. Seven is all throughout the book of Revelation. It's the number of completeness. It can even be at times the number of perfection. Twelve. You know what that is, don't you? The number of the people of God. Twelve. Twelve tribes of Israel. Twelve apostles. How many tribes of Israel were there? It's actually 13, right? God always gives us a little more than, than what we bargained for. You know, and Levi was scattered throughout the 12 tribes so he could teach, they could teach uh, the people of God, the things of God. But 12 is the number of the people of God. And in the New Testament, there were 12 apostles. But Judas fell, right? So now there's only 11. So the disciples... Pick another one. The apostles pick another one. Matthias. Now there's 12 again. And then, lo and behold, here comes the 13th one. You know? The apostle Paul as one born out of time. Just like in uh, the Old Testament. 12 tribes, 12 apostles, and then you get a bonus, you know, on each time. But the 12, of course, becomes the significant number. And uh, that becomes an important number for us to remember. Uh, ten, another important number in the book, it's the completion of God's purposes, and he can always complete his purposes because he's sovereign. I guess um, um, uh, one, of our, one of our people this morning said, I know another chapter you can do in your, your study. Said, God, she said, it's God cannot fail. Well, yeah, you're right. There's a lot of things we could come up with. God cannot fail. You know, it's impossible for him to fail. And he said to Smyrna, the Lord said to Smyrna in chapter 2, verse 10, I'll just read it to you. Chapter 2, 10. 
Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, okay, I'm going to throw some of you into prison to be tested. And for 10 days, you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you a crown of life. Now, this explains the persecution that they'll endure and the tribulation that will be part of this present world until the Lord returns. Uh, we've seen throughout through history, and it still is true today, not, not every Christian and not every church experiences tribulation. There are times of relative peace uh, that many endure. And persecution has almost always been somewhat localized uh, and such like that. And it certainly was that way in the first century, and it is. But did you notice 10 days? Ten days is symbolic, of course. It wasn't the fact that there was going to be a literal ten-day tribulation for the Smyrna church. That, that wouldn't be what we would want to say. But ten is significant because it's the completion of the purposes of God. And so this church will suffer persecution, but it'll only be for ten days. And that will be the completion of God's purposes. Now I want you to think with me about ten for a minute. Okay. Um, Ten days can seem like a long time. But really, if we've been around very long, we realize ten days isn't very long at all. You know, a, a crude illustration. I go to the dentist every six months because I want to keep my teeth. You know? And as I sit there in the dentist chair, you know, I think, I'm going to be here again in six months if the Lord so wills. What in the world is going to happen during this next six months? I started thinking about all the things that could happen. You get a lot of time to think when you're in the dentist chair, you know. And so I started thinking, what's going to happen in the next six months, you know? And before you know it, it's back again. Six months, just like. And I say it, and I say it every time. They probably get tired of hearing it because everybody tells them that. They say, yeah, yeah. That's why we call you because it comes around so quick. Comes around so quickly, and that's. Six months. Now, 10 days can seem like a long time, but in reality, it's very, very short when compared with a thousand years, for instance. 10 days compared to a thousand years. Now, here's some numbers here. And, and Jeff, you're the mathematician, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but do it silently. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> there are approximately 365,000. Days in a thousand years. Not counting leap years, not counting the way Jewish people counted years. Okay? So, 365,000 days in a thousand years. Compare that to 10 days. A person that's 83 years old, and some of you are a little bit older than that, but if you're 83 years old, uh, you have lived. Uh, for 30,000 days, okay, compared to 10 days. Smyrna's persecution is short compared to the spread of the gospel. So the point is, and the spread of the gospel, I believe, is symbolized by a thousand. That's why I use that. And it'll, we'll go into detail as to why. And Evan's trying to get ahead of me. He's reading uh, Revelation chapter 20 and trying to figure out what Beale is saying about the thousand. Well, we'll try to make sense of it all when we get there in a couple months here. But Smyrna's persecution is short compared to the spread of the gospel. So the point is, persecution, no matter how intense it is, even unto death, is short. But God's gospel age, his day of grace, this is the day of salvation. What that means, this is the, the period of time that God is working throughout the entire world to bring in his elect. Okay? The day of salvation is comparatively long. Okay? And that's something that we can just deduce from the numbers. <laughs> now, saying all of that, go back to Revelation 6. Like I said, doing just a little bit of a review, a bit of a recap. Got some, got some more numbers to talk about in just a moment here. Okay? Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Okay. 
When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and the witness they had borne. Now, we know we're talking figuratively here, of course. They're under the altar. He's seeing souls, which you really can't see. And so we're talking about figurative language here. And these aren't people that are trapped and, and now they're stuck in some kind of limbo or some kind of purgatory waiting to get out. That's, no, that's not the point at all. Obviously not. So we opened the fifth seal. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God, for the witness they had borne. These are the martyrs. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And so there's a number, an indefinite number, but God knows definitely who they are, of martyrs that, need to, that are going to be slain for the witness and testimony of Jesus Christ. Starting in verse number 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. There's the earthquake again. Always a sign of the end here. Um, a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit and was shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the great and the ones, the, the, the generals, the rich, the powerful, everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So that's got to be the end of the book. <laughs> yeah. Or at least take us to the eternal state. Nope. Here we go. It continues on. That's a, a good idea of the recapitulation. As we look here, we're already there. So let's go ahead and take a look at Revelation chapter 7, verse 3. Um, saying, a loud voice to, from the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth. Do not harm, they're told, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we've sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So now we see a sealing taking place. When we see four in, in the Bible, and just, this is a very common language for us to use. The four corners of the earth. Well, the earth doesn't have corners. We know that. That's not what we're trying to say. We're talking about north, south, east, west. We're talking about Everywhere we're talking about completion. And so the four angels would symbolize that. Uh, verses 9 and 10. After this I looked, after the, after the 144,000, which we'll talk about in just a moment. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels are standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. There's the four again. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and honor and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. So you got an amazing situation here. You've got a picture of all the elect through all the ages, along with an innumerable number of heavenly hosts. We have no idea how many of those there are. We could call them angels and call them spirits. We have no idea. There may be far more of them than there are of us. We, we just don't know. We're not told. We don't really need to know. But here we got this massive array around the throne there that we see there. Um, now, go back then to verse 4. Here's the famous 144,000. I don't think I mentioned this too. I might have. So if I have, uh, please forgive me. But um, I'm not sure that I did, at least not in this context, because it's just been recently that it just happened. I, 
Um, I, my doorbell rang, opened the door, and there's an older gentleman with a younger person, you know, maybe early 20s, you know. And immediately I knew we were, I had Jehovah Witnesses at my house. So I stepped outside and closed the door and began to dialogue a little bit with them. And it was interesting because this was a guy that knew his Bible. You know, he was, um, you know, he said, you're, you're probably the pastor of this church, aren't you? I said, yeah, I'm the pastor of the church. And he asked me a couple of questions. I couldn't remember what they were, but I answered them. Uh, and he said, oh. And then I asked him a couple of questions. And he answered them. And, okay, this guy does know some stuff. He knows his Bible and everything. And, of course, the 144,000 was bound to come up because that's a big one to them. They love the 144,000. And he asked me, what do you think of the 144,000? He said, I, I think that this is all of the people that are going to go to heaven. There's going to be 144,000 people on heaven, and the rest of the people are going to live on the earth. I said, well, I don't think you're entirely wrong, but I don't think you're entirely right. I think the 144,000 is symbolic, and heaven and earth have become one. And the people of God, along with um, you know, the angels and such like that, Dwell together in the new heavens and the new earth. He goes, well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> so, you know, it was interesting. There was no rancor, um, no arguing. He wasn't trying to convert me. I really wasn't even trying to convert him. We were just dialoguing and talking a little bit. And, and then he left, you know. But I do believe that the 144,000 symbolize all the elect of all ages which in reality can't be comprehended in number. We said, we just numbered them. No. Look at verse 9. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. And I think that's what we're talking about. You know, it's given to us in 12, the 12 times 1,000 language, you know, 12 times 12 times 1,000, 144,000. It's given to us in that type of numerical language. Okay, but, you know, um, really, I believe it symbol symbolizes all the people of God through all ages. I don't know, maybe he'd never heard that before. It seemed like he didn't have an answer back for that. So, but this was a guy that knew his stuff, too. So he wasn't just a, a newbie. A lot of times, you, the people that come into your door are newbies, and they know a certain amount of things, but they don't know. You know, they've got to stay on track. They're not allowed to go dialoguing off onto this and this and this. This guy was willing to do that. So it was a little more interesting than usual. But anyway, 10 times 10 times 10 is 1,000. And a millennium. I said, I thought you didn't believe in a millennium. And that's not true. We probably shouldn't be called a millennialist. That's probably a misnomer. I think realized eschatology is probably a better term that we believe these things are being fulfilled now. And God will complete his purposes and save all of his elect during this gospel age, before he returns, and destroys this present world system. So we're in the millennium as Christians, and will be in the eternal state once Christ comes. And while we're in the millennium, the lost are being judged. And they will continue to be judged until the end. Now, let's go to chapter 13 for a minute. I was really fascinated as Daniel was reading chapter 13. I started to think, I hope people are getting a sense of what this means. You know, because it, it really is a, a crucial chapter. You know, and um, 13.1, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea. And uh, of course, this beast is it's metaphorical. And um, rising out of the sea means amongst people. We could prove from the scriptures that, um, that uh, you know, whenever we're talking about that, the sea is a place of danger. The sea is a place of, uh, of turmoil. It also can symbolize people. And we'll see that in just a moment here. But anyway, as we, we deal with that, uh, this beast has um, ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And so you try to draw a picture of that, and you come up with something really, really ugly and, and really, really horrible and really, really grotesque. I mean, that's just no way to, to, 
to take that symbolism and put it down into a literal picture and uh, have it look like anything except that. But, uh, you know, instead, we'll skip through here just because of time. You know, just because of time. There's the beast that's there. Um, and then there's a second beast that comes. We're going to see this first beast and second beast in chapter 17. That's why I'm, I'm taking us there, taking you here to chapter 13. This beast comes up again. The first beast and the second beast come up again in chapter 17. And then, of course, the very famous, which I'm at numbers, the very famous one that's given here, um, verse 16, and it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now, I rely on Beale quite a bit, and Beale says the word number in the book of Revelation uh, is always used figuratively. So if we see the word number, we should think symbolic, something symbolic is about ready to happen. And calculate the number of the beast. Now, we see a mark given here. Mark of the beast. Probably the most famous thing in the book of Revelation is the mark of the beast. Right? Um, you would be hard-pressed to find a lost person. That if you said mark of the beast, they go, oh yeah, that's six, six, six thing, man. You know, I've been in the supermarket before, and um, my total would end in $6.66, and the cashier would go, oh, well, here we go. You know? It's well known in our culture about 666. But it isn't well known what it means. It really isn't. And uh, that is the fault of churches, I believe. There's something that we can understand here. There's a powerful meaning behind the 666. And it takes us into chapter 13 and takes us into chapter 17. Okay. Almost every translation, look at your translation uh, at the end of um, uh, chapter 18, or verse 18, sorry, the end of and it says, for it is, it, you need to have understanding to calculate this, because it's the number of a man. And his number is 666. Now we know that it's got to be symbolic. Okay, it has to be because of the interpretation rules. But there's something that really uh, should strike us as we read this. And, and I always warn you to be careful when, when someone's telling you something that, that um, you're just looking at the Bible and then they tell you that it's something else. You really need to question that once or twice or three times or four times. If it's plainly being said and they're telling you it doesn't mean that, then really be careful. Okay. But I'm about ready to tell you that it doesn't mean that. And the reason is, is from the Greek. Okay. Because the Greek doesn't say it's the number of a man. It might say that. It could be translated that way. Almost every Bible of every sort translates it that way. The number of a man. Okay. But Beale translates it for it's the number of humanity. I go, what? <laughs> the number of humanity. Okay. That's pretty cool. But I'm going to really study, make sure that he's right. So, you know, I'm doing my study. And the Greek word man is anthropos. It's usually translated man. But there are circumstances where it can be translated um, as mankind or humanity. Even though it's a singular, okay, it is singular. There is a case where the... Under certain conditions that I won't go into because it's convoluted, it's not convoluted, but it's difficult. It take a lot of explaining. There are certain circumstances where it's used as, just think of this, a collective noun. We know what collective nouns are. You know, look at the baseball team. Team becomes a collective noun, and you don't think there's just one person. You know, even though it's, you know, I'm talking about 
Look at the teams playing today. Now we know that there's more than one team going on. But team itself is a collective noun. There's a lot of collective nouns, very, very common, and, and Greek has them too. Now, the Greek scholar, Wallace, and uh, he is a scholar, probably one of the foremost of our day, Wallace, in a long footnote, says the evidence is in favor of humanity, and the burden of proof is with those who translate it a man, because the a is not there in Greek. Usually, we'll just supply it. We'll usually just put it in there. The is in there. What is the? We have an article, and we can see it. When it's not, we usually supply an A, but there's times where we shouldn't. And a collective noun would be one of those cases. And so um, Beale and Wallace both argue very strongly. And, and Wallace says on page 254, Greek grammar beyond the basics, and uh, the number of humanity is what he says. And then Beale takes that and goes with it too. Beale notes, humanity was created on the sixth day, but without the seventh day of God's own rest, which Adam and Eve were designed to fulfill, they would have been imperfect and incomplete. Beale goes on to say, the triple six emphasizes that the beast and his followers fall short of God's creative purposes for humanity. And if this is correct, it moves us, I think, from a future literal tribulation period of persecution because of a literal mark, to the main theme of Revelation that's relevant for the church throughout the ages until the Lord returns. Now, could something like that happen in America? Yeah, it could. It could. Something like that could happen. But it wouldn't be the fulfillment. It would be a fulfillment of this. You see, there have been times that Christians have been, uh, first century Christians, were kept out of the guilds. The guilds were what you did to, to kind of like unions today. Not exactly, but the guilds, uh, you, you become part of the guild and you can earn a living. And if you were a Christian, they shut you out of the guild. Now you don't have a way to make money. And, and you're sunk and you're in trouble unless you take the mark. Okay? And go along with emperor worship. And then you, and there have been many societies that have done that. Not all societies have done that, and our society hasn't done that yet, but it's what can happen. And I think it really does emphasize the fact that this can go on and on. It's not a real mark. It's not a computer. It's not something that gets you know, a chip implanted into you. But it's going along with the world system, and we're going to, to go a little bit further into that. Um, maybe today. We'll see how far we get. So in chapter 13, we saw the unholy trinity, which isn't really a trinity at all. It's a mock attempt at the trinity. We see the dragon. Chapter 12 is all about the dragon, how he tried to keep Christ from coming into the world, of course, failed miserably. And so he turns his attention to the church and begins to persecute the church. That's chapter 12. Really, probably the easiest, one of the easiest um, chapters to understand in the book of Revelation. And then the beast. The dragon imitates the father. The beast imitates the son, even has a deadly wound that's healed and, and is restored and comes back to life. And then the second beast, the false prophet, imitates the Holy Spirit by directing people to worship the beast as the Holy Spirit directs us to worship Christ and giving them a mark, which is a mimicking of the mark that God puts on his people. So I'm not telling you it's easy, but I'm telling you it makes sense. And it really makes it relevant for today. 666, the number of humanity. It helps us understand chapters 17 and 18. Go ahead and turn to 17 right now. Um, I'm going to posit to you that it's the combination of government and false religion creating an antichrist system. Government combined with false religion creating an antichrist system. And we see it. We see it in history. We even see it today. Rome and her god, Caesar. Very relevant for the first century Christians. They could see that. They lived in that world. And they weren't always being persecuted in every place at every time. But they lived in that world 
where the pagan gods were the gods that you were supposed to bow to. But you know, we have it in our world today, here in the 21st century. What if you lived in an Islamic country? And what if you openly and boldly professed yourself to be a Christian in an Islamic country? It, it might cost you your life. It, it very well could, you know, because government and false religion have combined. It happens in Hindu cultures. It happens even in Buddhist cultures. You know, it does. And um, we don't hear about it a lot. We don't, but it's going on even as we speak. Anytime you have the mixture of state and a religion that you must follow or suffer the consequences, you have 666. You have idolatry, lies, and antichrist. And persecution of Christ's church will always follow. Now, we've been blessed with freedom as Americans, and I love our country, but freedom can easily be lost. And if you don't believe that, and I think you probably do, freedom can easily be lost. How many times have we been told that it's true? But we've actually seen it happen. In a small measure, how quickly normal life in the United States was changed almost overnight. And we go to bed, wake up the next morning, we hear certain things, and by the time, in less than a week, we're confined to our homes. We're putting masks on our face. We're being told all these sorts of things. And we've got to do it. You've got to do it. Or you're in trouble, you know. And supposedly you're not supposed to be able to go into a store. Okay, well. Okay. That's an illustration of what can happen. I'm not saying that's what it is. But it is a small manifestation of what happens when government and false religion come into play. So what false religion do we have? An anti-God system that, that uh, just doesn't believe in God, it believes in humanity. And then it ran rampant with all kinds of evil being perpetrated upon our people and, and flooding in like a storm. And you say, how did all of this happen? Well, it didn't happen overnight, no. It, it was gradual and it came, but it came all of a sudden in a big wave and rushed across us. A little bit of receding now, like the ocean. The waves come in and the waves go out. Okay, we're living in a little period now of, of the waves going out. And I think we can be really thankful for that. And let's pray that we can get back to something. But make no mistake, secular humanism in all of its forms, and we could call it a lot of different things, but secular humanism in all of its forms has become the unofficial religion of the United States and if it ever succeeds in becoming the official state religion, guaranteed, there'll be persecution. Doesn't have to be Islam. Doesn't have to be Buddhism. Doesn't have to be any of those things. Secular humanism and its cousin atheism or agnosticism, all those things are enough, of course, to bring persecution upon us. And it is the unofficial religion of the United States it's causing some of you that uh, are dear people that are school teachers problems. If you're teaching in a public school, you're having problems. You're having to say things you don't want to say. You're, you're being forced to, to teach things that you wouldn't want to teach. You're trying to do the best that you can, and I pray for you. I really do. But uh, these things are difficult. I mentioned it this morning, how, how tough it is. I mean, we're in a political season now, and we have... Um, People going on your TV screens telling you that your rights have been violated because you no longer have abortion on demand. And so vote for me. I'll make sure that we have abortion on demand, and it will happen. And, of course, um, in my opinion, really, what we're just talking about is what we've always had throughout history, child sacrifice, sacrifice to the gods, sacrifice to secular humanism and pragmatism. You know, and um, Satan loves uh, to to destroy the image of God in man, and one of the easy ways he does it is by killing babies. And you say, how could anybody, uh, you know, destroy their baby to the god Molech? 
Yet they'll probably say, well, there's certain circumstances that we should, you know, abort that baby and kill that baby. They don't, even say, they don't usually say kill that baby. They just say exercise your choice. Okay. It's really important how you frame things. Really important how you say things. Okay. Well, okay. Now we're just about done. Let me just uh, take us to chapter 17 just for a moment. Okay. To give you a little taste of where we're going. Chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, so now we know we're still talking about bowls, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who's seated on many waters. So now we're talking about waters. Flip over to 15, chapter, or not chapter 15, but verse 15 of 17. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes, nations and languages. Sometimes God just tells us right up front what the imagery means. And there it is. You know. Now we're going to be talking about Babylon. Do understand this, that by the time this was written in the first century, there was no Babylon. Babylon had been long destroyed. It was gone. You know. But Babylon symbolizes something is what the problem is here. And, um, and verse 1, you know, uh, judgment prostitutes seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and, and the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had, guess what, seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels, pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Now, we're going to go into some detail next week, Lord willing, on this. But um, what we have is he comes from humanity. The beast comes from humanity. But the beast also has a helper, as we're going to see. A false prophet. Anti-Christian religion. So Satan, the beast, and the false prophet work together. But that's not all. There are those who have the mark of the beast. They follow the beast. They're the lost who don't worship God. They make up the majority of almost every culture, sometimes a vast majority. Sometimes we're talking about, you know, remember, we're talking about every time in New Testament history and every place in the world. So really there's only two distinctions between people, and, and you know that, those who are in Christ and those who do not worship God and therefore have the mark of the beast and follow the beast. So what we're going to see is we have a dragon, Satan. We have the beast, anti-Christian government. We have the second beast, the false prophet, anti-Christian religion. They join together. We have those who have the mark of the beast and often blindly but sometimes zealously go along with the anti-Christian flow. But you know, Babylon gets destroyed in chapter 17. It already was destroyed in 16. Now we find out how she was destroyed in 17 and 18. Well, how could it be destroyed? There's a principle. Sometimes the beast becomes so oppressive that her followers rebel. And we've seen this happening over and over in history. Nations rise and nations fall. And leaders rise and leaders fall. And, and I think there's a principle here that I want to put out to you. That no government can continue indefinitely unless it has the consent of the governed. It'll have the consent of the government or it will not last it may last for years, it may last for decades, it may last for generations, but eventually there will be an uprising only to be replaced by another beast, usually. A different beast, you know. Just as bad, often, or worse, but sometimes, of course, um, a little bit better. There's a little bit of relief. So in chapter 17, we have Babylon, a harlot, spiritually, of course, Doomed to destruction, but coming back in many forms. Because literally, 
literal Babylon is long gone. But spiritual Babylon keeps coming back, along with the dragon, who isn't destroyed until the end, the beast in its many forms, and the second beast, false prophet, false religion, and those who take the mark. So these are the things that we now see happening. What we have is we've come to this part of Revelation from chapter 12 on. It becomes highly symbolic. We've talked about physical things mostly in chapters 1 through 11. We see a lot of physicality being talked about. Now we're seeing a lot of spirituality and behind-the-scenes stuff taking place. So Babylon will symbolize the economic religious systems of the world. Beale says, therefore, Babylon is the prevailing economic religious system in alliance with the state and its related authorities as it exists in various forms through the ages. You know, and he states further, of course, the generally known fact that harlots in the ancient world as today offered their bodies for payment only enhances the economic nature of the Babylonian prostitute. That was a lot, I know. I gave you a lot here tonight. But we'll be able to pick up on that from next week with that kind of a background. And there's two points I want you to consider just tonight, real brief. Two points to consider and think about it. As you read 17 you're going to, and 18, you're going to see that Babylon rides on the beast. Now, usually the rider is the one in control, right? But the beast destroys Babylon. The beast itself destroys Babylon. She's destroyed by the very one she rides upon. And her lovers lament her destruction. Those with the mark in chapter 18. The reason for destruction given in 17 and the lament of her lovers is in chapter 18. And Babylon's always doing destruction, no matter how prosperous and powerful she may appear. And so we'll elaborate upon that the next time. May the Lord help us. Let's look to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll go to the communion table. Lord, we thank you for the word of God. Some of it much more difficult to understand than other places. And we certainly need the direction of your Holy Spirit as we navigate these types of waters. But we pray that we'd see the overall arching theme here and not try to simply make it as such that we have every nook and cranny and every nut and bolt figured out, Father, but that we can see the grand scope of what you're doing in this world. Then we look around at our own world and we can see these very things have developed and these very same things are taking place in some places more than others. But Lord, you will destroy the beast You'll destroy the false prophet. You'll destroy the great dragon, Satan. These will all, are all doomed to destruction and will be destroyed. And Babylon, in its many forms, as it takes place, will be destroyed also. It rises again only to be destroyed again. And Lord, we're thankful for that. For Babylon is an entirely wicked and evil system. So Lord, help us to not be discouraged. Help us to know who wins the war. And help us to look to Jesus Christ. And we give you thanks. In his name we pray. Amen.